Let's begin with prayer. Lord, as we just sang, would you open up our hearts? Would you help us to have a love for you? Lord, as we look at your word, would you plant it deep in us? May we be shaped by it, formed by it, that we might become more and more like you each day. Lord, use us to guide us as we go through our task each day to honor you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, God's word says, Slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Well, we have worked our way through some life-changing and powerful truths in Ephesians. In chapter 1, we saw that in Christ we've been redeemed, forgiven of all of our sins, adopted into God's family, given an eternal inheritance, sealed by the Spirit, and loved by God. Then flip back to chapter 2, because in chapter 2, remember that Paul rejoiced that we were dead in our sins, and yet Christ made us alive. Look at Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus, we're not saved by our works, but God has works for us to do. Yet, what does that mean? Do our works for God that mean only people like me are really serving God all the time? Are you cursed to spend most of your time doing things that are essential for life, but not really that important to God? How does our salvation even affect what we do most of the time outside of the time we're gathered together? Perhaps you feel frustrated. You think, I'm so excited to serve God and others, but I can only be at church so much. You want to do more, but I got to pay bills. I got to feed the children. I got to keep a roof over our head. Or another way to ask this is, what in the world does your job have to do with your Christian life? You know, the way we talk about what we do reveals a lot about what we think about it. You know, in the U.S., we sometimes ask someone, what do you do for a living? The German idea of work is, what is your duty? The Spanish word conveys dedication. Yet the biblical idea is that our work is more than just a living, a duty, or a dedication. Rather, our work is a calling from God in which we can love Him and love others. Our work is not a distraction from serving God, but it's one of the primary ways in which we do serve God. 
And this is really important because for the average adult, if you work 46 weeks a year, from the time you're 20 to 65, you will end up working, let's do some math, let's see, 10,350 days roughly, maybe 82,800 hours, or 49, sorry, 4,968,000,000 minutes. I obviously figured that all out ahead of time, but 5 million minutes of your life are going to be spent working. What do those 5 million minutes add up to? What do they really do for God and His kingdom? Do they even matter? And we're going to see this morning that God does have a purpose for them. And the implications of this passage really go beyond just employment. Rather, what we're talking about shows us that we can do any and all task in a way that honors or dishonors God. Thus, while I'm going to use the word work a lot to refer to a job, it really can refer to any task that we do. To see this, there's really kind of three sections. First, in verses 5 and 6, we want to, we're going to see that we're doing our best work for God. And then in verses 7 and 8, we're seeking our reward from God. And then lastly, Paul flips it and says, well, what about masters? Well, we want to be a master or a boss like God. It begins in verse 5. Verse 5 begins with slaves, or your translation may bond, say bond servants. And we looked last week at what that meant. We saw that Paul here was not condoning slavery as we think of it here in the United States. Rather, what they called a slave was more of an indentured servant. As well, slavery at that time was not based on race, and the men and women who were in it could acquire their freedom, and it happened quite frequently. On top of that, their estimates are that a third of the population lived in such a role. Thus, it was urgent for those people who became Christians, how do I live as a Christian in this area of my life? And here, in verse 5, Paul begins with calling slaves to obey your earthly masters in everything. Now, the phrase in everything isn't here, though it's implied and in Colossians 4, sorry, 3.22, it's explicitly stated, in everything. Now, of course, if your boss tells you to fudge the numbers, break the law, or do anything against God's law, then we're not to obey. Yet for everything else, whether their command is the very best way to do something, or you go, this guy's an idiot. That's dumb. I, well, we're called to obey in that too. In fact, we should obey with fear and trembling. Now, we need to remember that all of this is flowing from chapter 5, verse 21. So you might want to flip back there. Before that, Paul was talking about being filled with the Spirit, and he ends that section of being filled with the Spirit by saying, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he showed, what does that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ look like in a marriage? What does that look like in relation to parenting? And now he's come to the last one. What does that look like in the workplace? And so, out of reverence for Christ means we show reverence for our boss. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we bow down to them, but it means we show them a respect, a dignity, an honor that their position entails. It means that rather than grumbling about them behind their backs, we talk about them and to them in a way that recognizes their position demands respect. Now, of course, it's fine to talk to others, even talk to your boss about legitimate complaints. And yet that's vastly different than the grumbling we all know too well. 
you know, as you know, if you've ever had a position of leadership, there are many decisions where it's not black and white. This is the best, this is the worst, and those men and women in those roles have to make them. So while we might second guess, we recognize the challenge of their position. And so we serve our boss with reverence, not bringing up different perspectives to malign them or their character, but to show perhaps there's a better way. And Paul continues that our obedience should be, as he says, with a sincere heart. God's desire is not just that we externally obey, but that from the heart we follow our boss to the best of our abilities. We give our best efforts and undivided attention to our work to please those over us. Well, why would we work with such an energized attitude? Well, notice what he says next. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. You know, we give our wholehearted devotion, effort, and attention because our tasks are ultimately being done for Christ. He's the one who ultimately will inspect our work. He's the one who will give either an inadequate, proficient, or exemplary remark on our report. He's the one from whom we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You may have read or seen that this last November in San Francisco, uh, President Xi from China and President Biden met in San Francisco. And before that, there was a massive cleanup, massive effort to make the city look nice. And the governor of California said, I know folks say, oh, they're just cleaning up this place because all those fancy leaders are coming into town. Well, that's true because it's true. He was saying, we are, we are making it look nice. When President Biden and Z come to town, you don't just go, eh, we'll just let the streets look like what they always look like. No, you do everything you can to make it look wonderful. Well, those men are powerful and important. Yet we're working for someone of eternal value. We serve the king of kings. And if they're going to put their best forward, foot forward for men who are going to die, how much more should we give our best for the king of kings? Thus Paul elaborates in verse 6 that our work is not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We all know what eye service is. It's when your mom says, clean your room, and you start doing it till she goes out, and then you start playing with your toys, till you start hearing the footsteps, and then you make it look like you've been working hard, cleaning your room the whole time as she comes in. It's the boss is gone, and that person's always walking around, talking, they're on their phone, they're doing everything, and the boss comes in, and they make it look like they've been focused the whole time. It's eye service, so that their boss can see them. And yet we're doing our best because we know that God is always seeing us. Thus, it doesn't matter if we're backing up a trailer that no one else is going to see. It doesn't matter if we're welding a joint that's going to be unseen to everyone else. Or whether we're taking that call or finishing a report at 4.59. No matter when our task is or how trivial it is, we give our best because we get to do it for the King of Kings. You know, we make it our goal to please Him everywhere, all the time, and in everything. And this wonderful vision that all of our work matters because we're doing it for God, 
leads to two wonderful applications or results. First, when we realize that all work is important, we realize that you don't need to get so-called spiritual work. You know, to honor God doesn't mean you need to stop your job and then go become a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist. Or you don't have to hurry home from your job to go do the stuff that really matters. Where you are is what really matters. And again, this is not just for your job. Gene Veith, in his book about working for God, tells of a young mother who was in a Bible study that demanded strict commitment to the study of God's Word. Yet to her frustration and growing resentment, though she'd get up early every morning, so would her baby. And the baby would demand attention and feeding. And she was getting frustrated. Here I am getting up early trying to serve God and I'm being distracted. And yet as she came to see that God cares about all that we do, she came to see that her child wasn't a distraction from serving God. That's the way God wanted her to serve him at that time, was taking care of her child. You know, second, when we do our best work for God, it can actually lead to better evangelism. So you don't need to do evangelism to be honoring God, but if you do your best for God, it can actually lead to better evangelism. That's what I read at the beginning of the service. Titus 2, 8-10, through 10, which says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know, when you are a good worker, it makes the gospel look beautiful. Some of y'all have met my friend Richie. He's, he's come here and preached. And he told me once of how when he worked for a large company that this opportunity arose. He worked for a company that had a Christian boss and the Christian boss loved to hire seminary students. Well, they had a warehouse they worked in. It was a pretty easy job. So they had a basketball hoop in there. They were goofing around all the time, shooting uh, rubber band wars, all type of things, all these seminary students. But then company went through a tight time financially they had to really say no we got to start working harder and the manager of the warehouse got rid of the basketball goal and started really pushing them to work however most of the seminary students became angry they became upset and they started complaining about having to work so hard and my friend Richie kept working hard and doing his best and one day his boss asked him Richie why are you working so hard and Richie tried to explain from Ephesians 6, from these type of ideas, well, I'm not really serving you, I'm serving the Lord. To which he said, well, then why are the other seminary students not doing that? You know, your effort either adorns the gospel or it tarnishes the gospel because we are serving Christ. And when we do our best for him, people will notice and go, wow, what makes you different? You know, as you enter the workforce, you probably have realized, as I did, that if you show up on time, you do what you're supposed to without complaining, and you give your best efforts, you're like a star worker. And if you do more than that, because you're trying to serve Christ, you will stand out in your workplace. Now, people may never ask you why, and yet whether you're asked or not, we're doing it for God, and so that doesn't matter. And yet, when we're given those opportunities, we're adorning the gospel of God. Thus, you don't need to go somewhere else 
or get some new type of job to honor God. Rather, we need to go back to the same places in the same roles with a new mindset. Oz Guinness says it well. It's not that most Christians are not where they ought to be. It is that most Christians are not what they ought to be where they are. And we ought to be doing our best for God, whether that's at home or in the workplace. And catching this vision doesn't mean that your work's always going to be pleasurable. In fact, you might find resentment. As you do your best and you have a hard work ethic, those around you might begin to get frustrated. Get mad at you because you're kind of making their work not look so good. Yet our goal is not to get the praise of our co-workers or our boss. Rather, we're seeking our reward from the Lord. That's verses 7 and 8, the second section. Seeking our reward from God. Verse 7 says, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now, this is the exact opposite of what our culture preaches. I came across this poem a while back that says, When you get what you want in your struggle for self, and the world makes you a king for a day, go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear up to the end, and you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test if the man in the glass is your friend. Well, that's a lie. It really doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It's what God thinks about you that matters. In other words, the rewarder is not us. It's not our boss. It's not anyone else. The rewarder is God. You know, we're told that we think of our, what we think of our work as supreme, but we're not the supreme judge. And yet, it's just baked into our sinful nature that what we think of ourselves is most important. That we get the most praise. You know, the conductor of a great symphony orchestra was once asked, what was the most difficult instrument to play? Now, some of you are classically trained in music, and so you might be running through all the instruments thinking, okay, well, this one's hard, that one's hard. Well, those cymbals look pretty easy. Just clang them once. That can't be too hard. What's, what is it? Well, he said, second violin. We can get plenty of first violinists, but to get someone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. Well, why is that a problem? Well, because you're not first. You're not getting the attention. It's no longer about you. And so they don't try as hard. Well, Paul elaborates in verse 8 that we should render our best service for God and not for men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now notice something important. Paul did not say, don't worry if you're ever going to receive a reward for this. You know, seeking rewards is not a bad thing. This is why Jesus motivates us with commands like, store up your treasure in heaven. He's saying, you should want treasures. There's nothing wrong with that. It's why he tells us, look, endure this persecution for my name, because then your reward in heaven will be great. We should seek rewards. The issue is not wanting a reward. The issue is, from whom are you wanting them, and when are you demanding them? You know, sometimes we won't be rewarded on earth. 
And in fact, it seems like you might be getting the exact opposite of rewards for doing what's right. It seems like your efforts at working hard go unnoticed. And you have to keep dealing with a horrible boss or work conditions. You may even feel like Stephen Slatter, who had had enough. He was a flight attendant on his final flight, and he kept having to deal with these two women. They got in the plane, and they were arguing over who would get the last compartment for their luggage up above. He was already frustrated, already angry. And then they're landing, and one of the women, as they're taxiing, jumps up and grabs her bag before it's time to. And he says, woman, probably didn't say woman, but ma'am, you need to sit down. To which she cursed at him, and as she turned, accidentally hocked him on the head with her bag. Well, Stephen had had enough. When the plane stopped, he grabbed the intercom, cussed her out, grabbed a beer, opened the door, pulled the emergency chute, and slid out. And you might be thinking, oh, to do that. Oh, to let my boss have it. I just, I daydream of letting him hear everything he needs to hear. I have to listen to him. Oh, he's so dumb. And you want to do like Steven Slatter. You want to get on that intercom and let the world know and have that excess. And everyone's going, whoa, yeah, that's what I want to do. And yet, of course, that's not what we're to do. You go to your work. Every day, you're just counting down. Oh, when is this going to end? It may not be outside work. It might be your house. It might be your siblings. It might be something that you're just going, I've had enough. Here I am. I'm serving. I'm slaving away. I'm just owed a little respect, kindness, and love. And what do I get? Nothing. Even No one even notices. Or perhaps maybe you're even getting more abuse for your good work. Well, as Christians, we need to consider two things. First, 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul tells bond servants, If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Yes, God has called us to every single situation, but that doesn't mean we need to stay in every single situation. If you have the opportunity and you can no longer go to that place and work with a cheerful heart or you no longer feel like you can submit to what you're having to deal with, then seek something else and know that the Lord is not upset with you for doing that necessarily. Second, though, we need to consider what was read earlier in 1 Peter 2, 18-23. Let's turn there again. So we're in Ephesians, so flip past Hebrews, and then we'll be at James and 1 Peter. So flip to the right, have the book of Hebrews, is probably the main big one that you'll come across. Then James, 1 Peter, if you get to Revelation, you've gone a little too far. 1 Peter chapter 2, looking in at verse 18, that says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So not just, I'm just going to grin and bear it, but you're thinking God sees what's going on, and I'm doing this for verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are unbeaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You know, Jesus didn't go Stephen Slatter style down from the cross, letting everyone hear how unfair and unjust this was. You know, Peter's saying, look, if you're in a situation like a slave in which you can't get out, then you need to entrust yourself to your creator. You need to know that he is going to make all things right. And some of us may be in such situation. You have commitments to fulfill and you can't find a job that's going to pay what you make now. And so you wish you could do something else, but you seem stuck. Well, if that's the case, know that God sees. He knows exactly what's going on and continue to trust him. Don't just grin and bear and say, oh, I'm just going to do this. Entrust it to the Lord, knowing that he is seeing your faithfulness. And in all of this, talk to a brother and sister in here. Don't just go through that horrible employment by yourself. Have us pray for you and come alongside you and help you know, you should really get out of that. That's a little bit of an abusive workplace. Or maybe you need to keep going. But hear and seek the counsel and prayer of others. Thus, the main point of this, though, is that to do our work in a way that honors God is also to seek our reward from Him. While pay raises, promotions, public recognitions are wonderful, that's not our ultimate aim. We make it our aim to please God. We're not, as the song, working for the weekend. We're not working to get an important title or name. We're not working so that we can even become famous. Some of you may remember a couple of years ago, a young man wanted to become a famous YouTube star, which seems a goal of many people today. So he jumped from a bridge in Austin into the Colorado River. However, he fractured his skull and had to be rescued. He later commented, you might see it as jumping for views. I see more. I don't settle for less. I will leave my mark on this planet. Well, that's a sad commentary of what many people are working for. They're working for themselves that I will be remembered. I, I, I. So they will be known. But we're working not for our name, but for God's. We're not working harder because the performance review is coming up in five days, so I really need them to see me working hard. You know, whether we're five days from retirement, and there's really not much they could do to us at that point, or five days from that review, we do our best because we're working for the Lord. And knowing that God promises to reward whatever good anyone does, whether he's a slave or free, brings great encouragement and resolve in discouraging situations. We've all had school projects. We've had assignments. We've had situations in life where you're in a group and this person, they do nothing. They're actually sometimes worse than nothing. They're distracting. And you don't want to fail. So you're working hard. And you go and turn it in. And who gets all the credit? They do. It's so unfair. I did all the work. And then they're the one that the professor or the teacher or the boss goes, Wow, you do such good work. Did you not? I did all that. And yet, we know that one day, God is going to make all things right. 2 Corinthians 5.10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So unlike our culture, where sometimes people are promoted, given raise, notice because of favoritism, or nepotism, or sexism, or ageism, or racism, or whateverism you want to throw, God is no respecter of persons. Everyone will be rewarded or punished what we, they've done, whether slave or free. Now, many will think, and some will say, well, I mean, Paul, this definitely came from the management class. Oh, yeah, yeah, go tell the workers, you need to work hard. Don't worry if you're getting beaten. Don't worry if no one's noticing. You need to work hard. You know, this is that opiate for the masses. That's the type of stuff that's said to keep those lower people under control. Except notice what is said next. Because the commands are not just for those who are underneath, so to speak. But it's even those who are over and in charge. Because Paul now turns to give the master's commands. This is the last section. Being a boss like God. Ephesians 6 verse 9. It says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Now Paul's commands here would have been utterly shocking to people in the first century. You know, our culture, we find the commands to the women, to the wives, to the children, to the servants. We, oh man, that's, well, we're not sure we can trust the Bible. Back then, they would have heard the commands to husbands, to parents, to the masters. What? This is undercutting the societal structure that we need to have in place. And yet the Bible was not written to appease a certain group or control a certain group. The Bible was written because God in his grace wants everyone, master and free, to be delivered from our bondage to sin, to be forgiven, adopted, and loved by him eternally. And so God wants all of us to have the joy of living like him, whether we're the master or whether we are the servant. Thus he says in verse 9 that the masters should do the same things to their slaves as they would want done to them. Now, this is like Jesus' golden rule, Luke 6.31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And he gives specifically, specifics. In this case, they should stop their threatening. Now, I don't think that means a master can't give a warning of repercussions. I think what Paul is going after is the constant use of of the stick, as we might say. It's the extreme use of threats. You know, to call someone in and say, you know, I talked to you about this, I wrote you up about this, and if you do this again, I'm going to have to let you go. It's not a threat that Paul's talking about. That's just repercussion. But that's radically different than always going around and saying, if you don't get this done in 15 minutes, you're all fired. You know, no one loves living under this constant pressure that if you do any little thing wrong, your boss is going to be there berating you, punishing you, or holding over your head your very job. Likewise, bosses should expect quality work, but they don't need to be demanding or unreasonable in what they expect. You know, similarly, Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. You know, masters, they want to be treated justly and fairly, and so they should extend that same thing to those under them. Not, I'm in charge, I can do what I want. Not the twist of the golden rule that the one with the gold gets to make the rules. Rather, it's the consideration of 
well, how would I want to be treated in this situation? And then I'm going to treat the one under me in that same way. Now, many of us might think, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. I mean, I'm not a boss. I don't really have to say over anyone's life. And yet, in our consumer-oriented culture, we function like a boss all the time. If you've ever worked in the service industry, you know the mantra is that the customer is always right. Tragically, many customers know this, and they berate waitresses if their food is not cooked correctly. They jump down the throat of cashiers if what's scanned across the machine doesn't come up right, as though they had anything to do with that in the first place. You know, we call companies, and we threaten them, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to leave your company. Well, there again, there are times to talk to them and say, you know, I might have to consider some other companies if you can't fix this, but we don't threaten them. You know, we can sadly treat janitors, receptionists, busboys as though they're insignificant and don't matter. But they have a master in heaven, just as we do. And not only do we have the same master, but he shows no partiality. As 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Thus, whether it's the richest or poorest person, the person with the least or most influence, we are to give them the same love, devotion, and justice. And let me give some specifics of how this might work out in practice. We were visiting with Zach Watkins, who's not here today, about some of the things he did when he, before he became a pilot student. And he shared some things that I thought really exemplified this. So I asked him if I could share them, and he said yes. So to give a little context, some of you may remember Gavin Crow. He attended here for two or three years while he served at Shepherd Air Force Base as uh, someone in security forces. Now, I am not an expert in Air Force culture, so you can correct me later if I'm wrong, but I was given the impression by him and others that security forces are not the cream of the crop in the Air Force. On the ASVAB, they normally have tended to score lower. That's the test for getting into the military. And they often are not treated with a lot of respect, even called derogatory teams, like mall cops or whatever. And they can be quite powerless. And so it's easy for the lowest men on the totem pole to just say, well, y'all got to do this, and if you don't, you're going to be court-martialed. You're going to get in trouble. And one of the most frustrating things to Gavin, though he wasn't constantly complaining about his work, was that here we go, we work all night, several days a week, and then it's our day off. But you know what? The trainers don't want to come when we're there, so we have to come on our day off when we're supposed to be sleeping to come get our training. So we don't even get our days off. Well, Zach used to be an officer over security forces, and so he's told the trainers, no, you need to go train when they work. You work 8 to 5 every day. They're out there way more hours than you, so your training needs to fit their schedule rather than their schedule fitting yours. You know, what would they want? Well, I'm going to consider that and make that how I lead. Another example he gave is when you work with maybe the not the brightest and best, you sometimes end up having to write a lot of paperwork for disciplinary things, and you can begin to start getting very disgruntled. Ugh. These guys, the guys, all they ever do is write them up. Will they show up to work on time? Will they just do what they're supposed to? And he realized, I'm beginning to get embittered. And so he started asking, I don't know the term, sergeants maybe, who are the people who are really doing a great job but are not being noticed? 
And so as he wrote disciplinary reports, he also wrote reports praising those who are doing excellent work. And this works out in so many other ways. It's basically having an attitude as boss that the people on the ground, you know, they have valuable insights too. You know, just because you're in charge doesn't mean they need to do what you say and know you know everything as well. When it's applicable, you can go and help them do the things they do. You could be like a person who washes their servant's feet, who looks out and says, not, well, you're low, you go do that, but how can I come alongside and serve you? And we can talk to them and figure out what makes your job challenging. What do you find really frustrating? And as we're able, help. Now, some jobs you can never take away from a soldier. He might get shot at. That's your job. Sorry, I can't help there. But we can do our best to say, how can I be a boss that's here to help you, to serve you? And all this is saying that we want to do our best, whether employee or employer, to be like Christ in our work. Let me conclude by telling of how one Christian boss lived this out. There's a woman working in a large financial company, and she made a big mistake that she basically thought, well, once this gets known, I'm going to get fired. However, when it became known, her boss went into the superiors and he took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost some of his reputation. He lost some influence. And she was utterly amazed. She couldn't believe it. So she went into his office and said, I don't understand. I've had lots of bosses who took credit for the work I did. I've never had a boss who took responsibility for the mistakes that I made. And she kind of pushed him on it. And he said, oh, yeah, you know. But she was said, why did you do it? And he finally said, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done. He did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. Now, she didn't drop there on her knees and confess Jesus the Savior and Lord. But she did want to know more. She did start going to church, wanting to know what type of person would be like this. And whether our good work is ever noticed by people on earth leading to evangelistic opportunities like that or not, it's still valuable because we get to serve the King of Kings. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do so often lose sight of the vertical reality of life. We get caught in the horizontal and often the mundane, the tedious, the frustrating aspects of work and life. Lord, would you help us to lift our eyes, to see you and know that you care and that you're the rewarder of all things, whether it's ever noticed here on earth or not. Lord, would we be workers that bring praise to your name in all that we do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>